Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Chef, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs, and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is sustainability goals, commitments versus actions, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my guest, Jake Elder. Jake is in sustainability at Bloomberg Associates, where he advises mayors and senior city officials on sustainability initiatives and translates policy into on-the-ground change. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about Bloomberg Associates and your role there. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Bloomberg Associates is a pro bono consulting service working with mayors around the world. We were founded by former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg when he left City Hall and brought a cadre of his expertise with him over to his foundation. In the Bloomberg Associates world, I lead our client engagements with cities like London, Athens, Greece, Oakland, Bogota, Colombia, and Atlanta. And really, my overarching mission is just to improve the quality of life in the cities in which I work. So we're advising mayors and their senior teams on different programs and policies that can help advance the sustainability agenda. At the same time, I spend time coordinating Bloomberg Associates' sustainability thought leadership agenda around climate mitigation, including a recent research study we completed with the Global Covenant of Mayors and the World Resources Institute, looking at how cities are moving to action on climate change, where they're making progress, and where they're falling short. So I'm really looking forward to sharing some highlights from that research today. Yeah. And one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you is because you do have this experience with cities as diverse as Oakland to London to Bogota, all over the world and in this country too. So I just can't wait to dig into what these mayors are really doing on the ground across the world. So we've seen cities, states, and countries, they've set these ambitious climate goals. We hear the commitments and that's awesome. But what goes on after that? Sometimes we hear about sometimes struggling to get traction on these plans. What is the issue here? Are the plans too ambitious? Are the incentives right? I mean, what's your experience? Yeah, that's a great question and definitely very timely. I think I'd start by saying that plans and commitments are great. Almost 2,000 cities around the world at this point have declared climate emergencies. Countless are setting greenhouse gas reduction goals and adopting climate action plans. That's tremendous progress. And if you think back five years to think about that we would be reaching those kinds of milestones, you know, would be unthinkable. But plans alone don't change cities, and we really need execution. From our research, we found that nearly two-thirds of cities around the world have climate plans or are starting to adopt pilot projects. But at the same time, only 22% of those cities reported that they were implementing projects at scale. So what's that mean? Cities are starting to take this issue seriously. They're starting to set that agenda, but they're really struggling to move from some initial programs, some initial policies to projects at scale. And that's the case even when cities have a self-reported climate champion at mayor. The number gets slightly better, but it's still less than 30%. So what's causing that? I'm hesitant to say that the plans are too ambitious. For the most part, I think they actually do outline what's needed. But I don't think they always take into account what's really possible and feasible on the ground. And they're certainly not always being designed in ways that enable a transition from planning to execution. So we end up with really great plans and really great targets for 2050, but no thought as to what we're going to get by 2030 and who's actually going to pick up those pieces of those plans and make them a reality. So at the end of the day, I think we really need better granularity about what projects cities are going to move forward, better buy-in from all parts of city government, and crucially, integration into all parts of city government. 
and then a way of telling the story around climate and sustainability that matters for residents, such that once we have these plans, we're able to pull the political kind of will and raise the funding required to actually make them a reality. And yeah, I think the politics are interesting, right? Because these plans are by 2050 or even 2030 now, but I have not worked in a mayor's office. I've worked in a state government, though, in a governor's office. And I can tell you that in practice, it's hard to think about 2050. There are incentives politically to think in the medium to short term. So, I mean, does that play a role? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really easy to make a long-term commitment, right? When you know that you're not going to be around to bring it to fruition. And when you think about the kinds of recurring revenue streams and systemic change that we need in our cities, they're the kinds of changes that certainly can't last just one administration and require a level of kind of focus and goodwill that can last decades to make progress. So we're asking political leaders to take action now that will have a tremendous economic and social impact down the road, but where they don't necessarily always see the benefits. So we're really thinking about how do we build kind of ongoing coalitions of support and set up ongoing funding streams to remove some of those barriers to action and spur kind of quicker and faster movement on climate. Talking about the barriers, what are the barriers on the ground in a city and in a a mayoral office? Yeah, that's another great question. And the big one we just hit on, right, which is finance. That's the big elephant in the room. Transforming the built environment costs hundreds of millions of dollars in a small city or a large town. It gets into the billions or perhaps into the trillions when you think about really larger mega cities. So finance is, is obviously a major issue, but not the only one. Our research uncovered a few other key challenges. Uh, We surveyed over 300 cities around the world, and there were three kind of issues that I would raise. The first is actually having capacity to move projects forward. So more than half of cities reported that their team just couldn't really focus on the range of efforts that were needed to bring their plans to fruition. Sustainability teams are often small and cover broad policy areas. So finding a resource that can really focus on bringing an individual project to life is really difficult if you're just reliant on that central team. Likewise, I think sustainability staffers are struggling to coordinate across departments. So one third of cities mentioned that they were really struggling to build buy-in from folks in planning, transportation departments, or sponsorship from senior operations and finance leaders. And if you think about it, to go back to the money question, those are the folks that control a lot of the budget, right? So if you can't get your planning commissioner or your transportation commissioner to buy into this agenda, you're really kind of limiting yourself in terms of the resources you have available to transform a city. And then lastly, and this came up with about 20% of cities, there's the issue of building public and political support for action. So I think that despite the trends we saw earlier around kind of climate emergencies and climate planning, some cities are certainly struggling to build the coalition needed to support climate action. And when we dug deeper, I think it's really about storytelling more than underlying resistance to particular policies. And cities really aren't equipped to make the case for climate action in a compelling way. And instead, stick to the narrative around we need to do this to solve climate change, we need to do this to lower our greenhouse gas emissions, instead of really focusing on the fact that climate smart policy is just good city policy, and smart transportation policy, smart planning policy actually helps lower our emissions. We tend to fight the fight based on climate action instead of talking about how it just makes lives better for residents. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because I see a lot of cities hiring chief sustainability officers. You mentioned the sustainability offices. I mean, are these the right positions? Are these offices making a difference? How should elected officials kind of approach climate in this way within their administrations? Yeah, that's definitely a timely question. You know, chief sustainability officers are a really great resource and a great innovation over the last decade or so, positioning a team kind of centrally located close to the mayor with the ability to speak on behalf of the mayor and coordinate action is really powerful and definitely a leading practice. 
but it's not enough. Chief sustainability officers are typically, as we've mentioned, small teams with limited control of resources, whether that's staff or financial, and being asked to drive a massive transformation across the whole of government. I think it's really important that mayors and elected officials stay engaged in this work and don't just outsource it to the chief sustainability officer and instead use their platform to demonstrate to folks like chief operating officers, chief financial officers, budget directors, and department heads that this work matters and they expect to seek action. So to summarize, chief sustainability officers are great. They're really critical in some of our best partners in cities, but mayors and other elected officials need to make sure that they are not the sole champion of sustainability and climate action and that it's decentralized across city government. Yeah, I think that's really important that the people who are actually running the city, the people that the, the mayor puts in charge of these departments need to kind of walk the walk on this stuff also and kind of get it down into the inner workings of city government. Like you mentioned, good transportation policy is good climate policy also. So I think that makes a lot of sense. You touched on incentives a little bit, but what does that right package of incentives look like in a city? Yeah. So we were really trying to understand why is this happening and why are we getting this disconnect when elected officials are saying this is so important? And I think it really comes back to the narrative we're telling, as well as the systems that we've set up to manage our cities. So on the narrative front, you know, department leadership really matters. And we need department leaders to understand how climate action actually delivers on the outcomes that they are being held accountable for. I think a really great example in a positive light would be um, New York City under Mayor Bloomberg and um, Transportation Commissioner Jeanette Sadek-Khan, where Jeanette led some really transformational projects in terms of incredible role out of bike lanes, new bus rapid transit networks, and a real focus on pedestrian safety, all of which are key pillars of almost any climate plan you'll see in the US, if not most cities around the world. But Jeanette focused on it as a means to delivering transportation outcomes, to improving congestion, to reducing traffic deaths, those sorts of metrics, because she understood the connection between climate and transportation goals. In other cities, you have a chief sustainability officer that shows up at a transportation commissioner's desk and says, I need you to do these things. They're above and beyond your normal job because they solve our climate agenda. And without that connection to they also deliver on your agenda, it's always going to be a second tier priority. In addition, I think that there are some really great examples of leading cities that are taking a systems-based approach to marshalling action across City Hall and getting some of those incentives right beyond just the storytelling angle. One of those is in Oslo, where they've adopted what's called a climate budget. In essence, they've integrated their overall financial budgeting process with a greenhouse gas emissions budget. And so page one of their budget every year is how much money they're going to spend. Page two is how much carbon they're going to be responsible for. And every department head, everybody with a budget line also has a carbon line associated with it. So when the mayor's checking in, when the CFO is checking in, et cetera, they're seeing both those numbers and elected officials see directly how they're accountable for progress. Another example that I think is really fascinating is in San Jose, where the mayor and his team have worked to redesign their council briefing forms to include a section that asks how any policy or program under consideration contributes to their climate smart San Jose goals. And so that section can be left blank, right? But every commissioner, everybody presenting to council needs to be prepared to speak to the climate impact of their program. And certainly that has a way of changing their behavior and making sure that they're thinking through the climate ramifications. Those are just a few examples, but I think it's really about helping commissioners see the benefits themselves and then putting some of those systems in place so that they're forced to be more conscious. Yeah. And accountability is always a good thing. And pointing people in the right direction in terms of what they're responsible for, I think is powerful. But you just mentioned greenhouse gas emissions, you know, emissions in general. We hear a lot about that and those data points, but 
Are there other data points that city leaders should be looking at? Is emissions really the most important thing or can we get to that place by looking at other pieces of information? Yeah, that's really a tough one. I mean, of course, emissions matter, right? They're what are driving cities to take action and what's going to cause irreparable harm to our communities if we don't act. But as a decision-making metric, they're not so useful. They often have a big time lag, but can take up to two years to report emissions and get all the data kind of organized and validated. And they're also susceptible to all sorts of externalities. So a hot summer in the South is going to mean there's more electricity consumption. A low snow year in the Pacific Northwest is going to mean there's low hydropower generation and higher fossil gas use. And lastly, I think they're abstract. Nobody really knows how to conceptualize a ton of greenhouse gas emissions other than the fact that it sounds heavy. So cities themselves aren't really using this data. From our survey, only half of cities that have gone through the work to develop a greenhouse gas inventory reported using greenhouse gas data on a regular basis to inform their decision making. And that means that we really need to be thinking about what other measures we can incorporate into climate action. To me, those are really measures that focus on people. So job creation, public health measures like air quality, congestion, commute times, traffic safety in the transportation world and then place-based kind of equity measures like distance to parks, tree canopies in different communities, flood risk, and so on. Those are the type of measures that I think actually you can track to a specific policy, but also are what get mayors elected. And so are gonna draw additional attention and focus from elected officials. Now, the good news is that good climate policy does both. The bad news is that we aren't always equipped to do so in a compelling way. Well, you just described what sounds like good government in general to me. So I think that you're right in equating kind of good government management with good climate policy as well. Um, you hit on some of these cities that are looking to doing a good job in measuring or holding department leaders accountable. But give me a few more examples in the U.S. and abroad, maybe, of cities that are actually doing it right in terms of implementation. Yeah, absolutely. So first, maybe I just pick up on San Jose because Mayor Licardo um, and his team have really done a great job of not just thinking about this on a systems level, like I mentioned, but also really pushing forward some big policy wins, including a recent ban of natural gas in new buildings, which is really tremendous. Another example that I'd highlight in particular on the equity front would be Nashville, where we helped them launch a 500,000 tree planting campaign, but really grounded in equity. And so the messaging is about how do you develop climate smart programming by focusing on these other lenses, in particular air quality and flood risk. And Nashville was actually able to use really granular data on where they have trees and where they are poorly performing on other outcome measures like respiratory disease, heat, and flood vulnerability to identify neighborhoods within the city that have few trees and major public health risks. And then incorporated those impact areas as priority focus kind of neighborhoods for the program to ensure that they were improving quality of life there. And that really, in many ways, flips the traditional kind of tree planting model on its head, right? Where in some other places, you might have volunteers and advocates fundraise and then plant trees in the areas where folks have the resources to get engaged. But that might further exacerbate this kind of equity issue in communities that don't have a ton of existing resources. And instead, Nashville's really been able to deliver and focus its planting efforts on those neighborhoods that get the least resources from the city historically. The third example that I'll highlight is in Milan, where Milan's mayor, Beppe Sala, has set a really ambitious goal of carbon neutrality and then backed it up with a few different pillars. The first would be really aggressive actions across a number of different sectors, including implementing a low emission zone and a congestion charge for transportation, changing underlying city systems to incentivize tree planting, and then really thinking intentionally about how it, they can use bureaucratic tools like their building codes to drive the broader climate transformation. 
At the same time, I think Mayor Sala is a really great example because he's been showing regional leadership, thinking about what he can do in the greater Milan metropolitan area and starting the Foresta Me tree planting program, which is really focused at a regional level. And then Mayor Sala has also stepped up globally, helping to chair C40's global task force on COVID recovery and making sure that the conversations around COVID's economic recovery and climate are really interconnected. You know, these guys sound like the superstars. I love those, the tree planting initiatives. And and certainly we've talked on the show about the natural gas bans that happened in California and kind of the impact there. But when you go into a city for the first time, I mean, what are the actionable programs and policies that you're advocating for? Some of the low-hanging fruit that these mayors who are just getting started can kind of execute. I tend to quickly look for the game changers. You know, what are the big picture ideas that can transform city systems? Making progress in government is so difficult and, you know, requires kind of so much coordination and effort that if you try to do everything and try to pick up all the different opportunities at once, you're not going to get anything done. So it's how do you think about what are the one or two to three bigger picture items that are really going to move the needle and focus on those and let the rest follow. I think generally, you know, we really know what needs to happen to decarbonize our cities. My colleagues at Bloomberg Philanthropies through their American Cities Climate Challenge identified about 15 or so actions across the buildings and transportation ecosystem that would include some of those low-hanging fruit, some kind of proven but ambitious actions, as well as some moonshots. And another organization called the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance has come out with their own list of seven game changers. So to me, it's less of a what do we do and more about how do we do these things faster and focus on impact. But that said, I'd maybe highlight three emerging areas that I find interesting. The first would be the carbon budgeting model that Oslo's rolled out and CNCA is now working to encourage all of its member cities to adopt. The second would be thinking about transportation investments that can be done quickly without massive infrastructure spending. So the potential of bus rapid transit or even just high quality, high frequency bus service with dedicated lanes to help take cars off the road is something that I think deserves a lot more attention. And then lastly, and I know you've talked about this a bit previously, the adoption of building performance standards in cities in the U.S. has been an interesting area that has the potential to drive the sort of change we need in our cities and also drive that change in a way that still gives businesses kind of options to find the easiest path forward to comply with what is in essence a city mandate. Yeah, I want to touch on bus rapid transit for a second because that's an idea that I've always thought is very interesting. It's done a lot internationally. I know in South America, it's done a lot, but in this country, it really hasn't kind of gained traction. Do you think that could be effective here? I know it's a relatively low cost form of public transportation that does work in other places. I do. Maybe I'm an optimist, but I think that the model is proven and certainly is effective and can deliver high quality services for residents. I think there's two issues that are probably interrelated. The first would be overcoming the stigma of taking the bus and kind of ensuring that buses are viewed as a resource for everybody. They certainly are in a city like New York City, where in many cases it's the fastest way to get around. But in other cities, they're you know often stigmatized or viewed as something you only take if you don't have another option. And part of the reason that they're viewed that way is because in many cities, they are. The cities have not invested in developing a network of buses that come frequently and take you to the places that you want to go. And so that's the second challenge with BRT, is making sure that they actually provide access to places where residents want to be and that you can get a bus within a reasonable amount of time. If you have to go sit outside in the heat with no bus shelter, wait 30 minutes for a bus that then connects you to another bus that then connects you to another bus to get somewhere that you could have driven in 20 minutes, you're never going to take that bus, right? And so if we want residents to take buses or BRT, we need to build those networks that are highly interconnected and that come on a reliable and rapid basis so that bus travel becomes just as easy as taking the subway or getting in your car. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm from Baltimore City and uh, lived here most of my life, most of my adult life, and I can't remember taking the bus more than a handful of times. So it's definitely true. But when I lived in New York, I was a regular on the Second Avenue bus. So yeah, it's got to be easy. Yeah. So speaking of New York, New York City is building emissions law. Local law 97 is a topic we've covered a lot on this show. And we keep coming back to it because I think it's so kind of revolutionary and of the moment. But this law explicitly focuses on building emissions rather than building efficiency like some other building laws. Explain how this can have maybe some perverse incentives and why efficiency is even more important in this context, but doesn't seem to be. Yeah, this is a tough one. And in the context of our last discussion, I think building performance standards and emissions laws are a great practice. And New York City deserves a lot of credit for being one of the first in the country to roll one out. But they've kind of run into an interesting situation where they told buildings that they need to reduce their emissions by 40% by 2030 and left the rest up to them. At the same time, or I guess slightly afterwards, New York State adopted a fairly ambitious clean energy agenda of its own with mandates for utilities to deliver high levels of clean energy by 2030 and beyond. And when you run those two scenarios together, if the state reaches its goals, most buildings will achieve that 40% reduction target with limited or no additional action. But at the same time, reaching those goals is really difficult at a state level, especially as we start to plug more into the grid for example, if we start to get off fossil gas and electrify our heating systems. Some analysis that we ran suggested that just in New York City alone, we would need three times the power we currently generate to meet future demand if everything were electrified. That's a massive uptake in additional energy requirements, which means we don't just need to clean the current grid, but we need to build two more on top of that. And that's why efficiency is so key. It's become a cliche, and I've heard it say a few different ways, but the most cost-effective form of carbon-free energy, right, is the energy that's never generated in the first place. And so I think the focus on efficiency and lowering our overall energy use is really a critical piece of the puzzle, not just in New York City with this interesting policy mix, but across the rest of the country and the world. Yeah. And I just think when I first read about this law and started digging into it, my initial thought was, wow, the very powerful New York City commercial real estate the lobby is going to really start hammering on renewables yep. because they want to shift that load. But I think it could take away from the work that really needs to be done in these buildings too. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out. Yeah. And it certainly, it will solve itself in the long run by 2050, but whether or not we see action quickly and in the short term, I think is an open question. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see how that law plays out. I want to ask you, it's March of 2021. We've been in this pandemic for just about a year now. Has the pandemic changed your work? Are things easier? Are things getting harder for you as you work with these cities on their sustainability goals? And are these goals still top of mind for mayors? Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough year for all of us, and especially those in charge of municipal finance, I think, have certainly worked overtime. But to some extent, I think the pandemic has also started to force those of us in the field to start to drive this reframing of climate action that we've been talking about and talking about these policies and programs, not just as programs that are good investments for the long term from a planetary sustainability perspective, but really talking about them as opportunities that improve public health and improve livelihoods for residents today. So street closures are a great example. Street closures are something that Jeanette Sadek Khan in New York City kind of took a lead role on, closing a lot of streets and creating a lot more pedestrian space, making streets more inviting for people to spend time outside, making it easier to get around without cars. But street closures also deliver on a lot of the COVID recovery agenda around reopening and public safety and creating kind of healthy, safe spaces for people to recreate. 
that's a win-win. Those kind of levels of street closures would not have been adopted around the country if we were just talking about climate and sustainability. But certainly COVID has driven that sort of transformation. I think the C40 task force on COVID reopening that I mentioned earlier has any number of great examples of maximizing kind of the multiple benefits of COVID reopening as well as kind of climate outcomes. And I really think that what it's shown for us is that if we talk about these programs in the right way, if we talk about energy efficiency as an opportunity to help business owners save money and save operating costs during a really tough period, if we talk about pedestrian safety as an opportunity to relieve some stress on our hospitals and encourage more people to travel outside as opposed to in cars or other modes of transit, we can have a lot more progress than if we just start shouting at mayors that we need to do all these things because the climate crisis is coming and we don't have any other option. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end is kind of hammering that point that sustainability is about more than just emissions. It really is about good government and getting outcomes that benefit everybody at the public health level, the transportation level, at really all levels of government. And this really needs to be adopted government-wide to not just to lower emissions, but to have yeah good outcomes all over a city. Yeah. I mean, I would just close with, if you think about a lot of the cities that you view as sustainability leaders, and I'll, I'll let the listeners kind of use their own imaginations. A lot of those cities are just good cities to live in and just good cities that are well run. And they've been able to integrate those two agendas into one. Absolutely. Well, Jake, thanks so much for joining us. This was a really fascinating and interesting conversation, and I really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Visioneering Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Jake Elder of Bloomberg Associates for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you listen to your podcast. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, my name is John Sheff, Director of Public and Industry Affairs at Danfoss. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinion of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other web website, computer, or playing device.